Welcome to Tracks Through Time. I'm your host and FreightWave's deputy editor, Brielle Jekyll, and I'm here to tell you about some of the most interesting stories throughout history in transportation and freight. Uh, and today we are covering a group of amazing Black women during World War II who single-handedly fixed the postal problem in the Army at the time. And then we also hear from a historian for the U.S. Army who gives us an inside scoop on these women and their story. But before we dive into the inspiring story of the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion, I want to address an important aspect of our, of our discussion. As a white woman exploring a moment in Black history, it's really crucial for me to recognize and acknowledge the significance of this narrative and the voices that should be centered. While my intention is to shed light on this extraordinary chapter, I really want to emphasize the importance of amplifying the experiences and perspectives of the women of the 6888 Battalion themselves. It is a privilege to tell these stories, and I really want to acknowledge the invaluable con contrib contributions of Black historians, scholars, community members, and, and those in the Army themselves who have diligently researched, documented, and preserve the legacy of the 6888 Battalion. And their work really serves as the foundation for our exploration today. Um, so let's get into it. When we think about the heroic contributions of women during World War II, we often conjure up images of Rosie the Riveter, dedicated nurses, fearless spies. But there were so many other unsung heroines who played pivotal roles even in the face of discrimination and adversity. Today, we shine a spotlight on one such group of remarkable women called the 6888 Battalion or the 6888 Battalion, uh, which is commonly known as the 6888. Uh, as World War II raged on, the importance of efficient communication and mail delivery to troops stationed overseas cannot be overstated. During their, the war, the U.S. Army faced a logistical nightmare when it came to handling the immense volume of mail. Enter the 6888, an all-Black unit of women who were tasked with an extraordinary mission to clear backlog of mail and assure that millions of letters and packages reached their intended recipients. The story of the 6888 began in 1944 when the Army faced an estimated 7 million pieces of undelivered mail piled up in warehouses across Europe, leaving troops longing for news from home. Amidst the chaos and frustration, the Army made the groundbreaking decision to deploy the 6888 Battalion, an all-Black female unit, to tackle it. Led by Major Charity Adams, the 6888 was composed of over 800 enlisted African-American women. These trailblazers came from all corners of the United States, united by their determination to serve their country and their loved ones overseas. Desp despite facing pervasive racism and sexism both within and outside the military, these women showcased extraordinary resilience and expertise as they set out to confront the logistical nightmare before them. 
the women of the 6888 had to organize, sort, and deliver an unprecedented, unprecedented amount of mail, often working under challenging conditions. In makeshift work, war, warehouses and cramped spaces, they sorted through mountains of letters, packages, and parcels, carefully ensuring that each item reached the correct soldier. soldier. Their impact extended far beyond the delivery of mail. Their pr- presence challenged prevailing stereotypes and shattered racial gender barriers. The women of the 6888 proved beyond a doubt that they were capable of carrying out vital military options with efficiency, skill, and unwavering determination. Now, if you're just joining us, we are discussing the triple, the 6888 Battalion during World War II who are responsible for the delivery of mails, of mail to soldiers throughout Europe. And now we're going to hear from Kevin Hemill, whose work as a historian has really helped bring this group of women's story to light. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Tracks Through Time. I am here with Kevin Hemel, who is a contract historian for the U.S. Army. Yes, that's right, a contract historian for the U.S. Army. Um, and he's also a historian for Steve Ambrose Historical Tours and the author of numerous books related to uh, and articles related to World War II um, and also a relatively recent role that we're going to keep a secret for now and we will talk about later. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Brielle. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. So I'm really excited. I, I, I've given the audience a little bit of an intro on our story here, but you are really an expert in the uh, 6888 Battalion uh, and I think it's such an interesting story because it's relatively unknown in, you know, World War II history. It's n- it's not something that we really, you know, extensively covered in movies, television, articles, things like that. So I was really, really excited to be able to talk to you and learn about what you know about these amazing women. Uh, but first, I want to start off and really kind of get down to what were the circumstances that really led to the 6888? Uh, postal battalion, what, you know, like between their gender, their race, and their job, you know, why was that needed? Sure. Well, um, you know, in times of war, uh, you know, necessity makes uh, brilliant people out of everyone. And what was happening uh, as the war is going on and being fought across Europe, a lot of soldiers, their families back home are mailing them letters and packages. And if the soldiers were wounded or uh, transferred to another unit or some odd circumstance that they're not where they're supposed to be, the mail would kind of bounce back to England where it was going to get figured out and, and then resent. Well, a step got lost in all of that. You know, there's a major war going on in Europe. Uh, this is one of the things that slips through the cracks. And you've got this buildup of mail in Birmingham, England. I think it's at least three warehouses full. And how are we going to get this disseminated? We got every every able-bodied male, you know, has got to be on the front fighting. They're 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 taking heavy casualties. Um, you know, that's that's the priority. And so you've got all these African American women in the United States who've signed up to serve, and they're they're doing different jobs all over the country in the continental United States. And uh, through some lobbying through black leaders. They say, okay, this there here's a task 
that we can give these women to do. This is an important task. It needs to get done. Um, but a lot of people don't believe that black women can do this job. You know, this is this is something that's going to take brains. You need a white person. And we're not even sure a woman is up to this. They're, they're really facing all kinds of sexism and racism. Um, so they put together a battalion under uh, Major Charity Adams. And uh, this is about 850 women. They send them overseas across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, they set up shop in Birmingham, England. And they're only given six months to get all these warehouses of mail, you know, directed to where they should be going. They had a they had a unique name. It was the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion. So they're not really going out and handing out the mail to the soldiers in the front. They're getting it organized from Birmingham to get to the right locations once it departs. Um, they they don't face a lot of racism from the British. They face they they have a lot of acceptance, but when there's clashes with American soldiers, that's when they start hearing the N word and a lot of questions. Um, you know, there there are some black soldiers that show up and say, "Well, these women are here for us," so they're kind of getting it from every angle. And um, you know, at one point, just to give you an anecdote of, of kind of what they're facing, uh, a general, and we're not sure. Some people are sure who it is. I'm not confident who it is, so I'm not going to say a name. But a general comes to review the troops and he tells Charity Adams, you know, hey, I want to review the unit. And this battalion is made up of about four companies. Each company is about 100 soldiers each. And so she falls three companies out for inspection and he walks down the line and he says, where's the other company? And she says, well, they're, they're pitching mail. This is their job. And he explodes on her and he says, how dare you? You know, you can't follow orders. I'm going to replace you with a white lieutenant. You know, here she is, a major, you know. And I don't know what happened, but he came back about a week later and apologized. Um, so that's just like one of those kind of slights and insults. In fact, the army sets up a, a black, uh, what it was, a USO place, you know, for the women to go to a YMCA, for them to like shoot pool and play ping pong. And Charity Adams calls the unit together and says, I can't, and she realizes if we start going to this, we're giving into segregation. So she says, I can't tell you not to go there, but I'm not going to go there. And not a single one of those women, you know, put a single foot into that YMCA. So uh, I guess it would be a WYMCA. Um, so, you know, all these kind of slights and everything, and they're only given six months to do the job. Um, and so they basically work around the clock in these cold warehouses, no heating, rats. Uh, you know, they're wearing like layers of clothes because it's so cold and they get the job done in three months. You know, so they 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 cut the time in half. All the doubters are, are kind of put to shame uh, and they finish just as the war ends. Now, in a way that doesn't mean anything because there's still an entire army of soldiers over there in Europe. They're not going home the next day uh, and they've, desperately want their mail. And so they they ship the women to France. Uh, again, given six months to get the mail caught up, they do it in three. When it's all over, they send them to uh, two big hotels in Paris, one for the officers, one for the enlisted ladies. And, you know, these women back home are second and third class citizens. They're nursemaids, they're seamstresses, they're cooks. And, you know, they get put up in these hotels in Paris and suddenly they have concierge. They have a chef cooking their meals. 
They've got maids making their beds for them. You know, it's such a radical turnaround. Um, and then they're sent home. The unit is dispersed and they're completely forgotten. Um, I actually did hear that story of uh, the general visiting. And I actually um, heard I read somewhere that there's a spunky part to her um, that she responded with uh, with a little bit of an attitude and um, that they kind of had to figure out how to not get her, um, you know, kicked out or reprimanded or, or, or whatever. Um, but what was it that she said? I can't remember. You can say on over de- over my dead body. That's right. And she said in front of everyone, you know, she was not taking that, you know, for a second. And uh, yeah, causes quite a stir, but he comes back and apologizes. So, yeah, how about that? That's crazy. I know they they really really went through through so much. Um, but w- what was their like specific day to day duties? So, um, the majority of it is to that these warehouses are full of letters and packages, and they and they're obviously been delivered to the wrong place. So they are getting manifests of like soldiers in hospitals and soldiers that have been transferred. And they've got to match the letter to the soldier and get it directed to either the hospital, to the new unit, or what's called a dead letter, reality of combat. These men have been killed in combat. And so those letters have to be returned home. Um, and so that's the majority of it. A lot of the women, uh, they were assigned, they had different departments. Um, one of one group was taking packages that were all, you know, had been broken into by rats and, you know, opening them up, making sure the the contents was secure, wrapping them back up again and making sure they got to the soldiers. Um, this is a whole battalion of 800 women. So you also, and they're self-sustaining, okay? So they've got their own motor pool with their own drivers, you know, and these are all black women. These are no white soldiers supervising anything, you know. Um, they had a headquarters department, um, but the majority of it is a round-the-clock working of, emptying these warehouses of these letters and packages and getting them to where they need to go on that first leg of that journey. It, it's it's crazy to think how import, important their job was because, I mean, but you wouldn't necessarily think that that was such an important role to have, to have a, a battalion specific for that. But you, you could see what happened during COVID and even, you know, the year or two after the mail just went absolutely haywire. I mean, it was a disaster for a long time. So I can't even imagine what that must be like during wartime um, overseas and, you know, not with the technology that we have today, you know. So I can really see why, how, how important. Imagine if during COVID, everybody's internet went down, you know, that that's kind of the equivalent. In fact, the the the, the motto for the battalion was no mail, low morale. You know, people who don't get their mail are going to have low morale. And, you know, it's one of those elements that if you're just studying combat and stuff, you don't think of. But there's all these units within the military that make the soldier's life tolerable, you know, uh, and manageable. I mean, you've got Graves registration guys getting the dead bodies off the battlefield and burying them so soldiers don't get disease as they head into battle. You know, they, 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 the military really does think of all these external elements uh, to make, you know, combat more survivable, to keep the morale up. And these women were part of that. Overall, 
I, I understand that they they served a very important role. But was there any like major stories, the like major event that they really made a, a big difference in, like an anecdote that you can think of? Um. Well, uh, well, I guess they, you know. So they get over there in February of 1945. So the war is really kind of ticking down. <clears throat> um. But it was it was really that that confrontation with the general, the uh, the the YACA. Um, but I, I've interviewed a number of the ladies and got like little individual stories. I can tell you that on the way over now, a lot of these women, like I said, they were impoverished. You know, they were they were living as third class citizens of the United States. They had never left their their country, much less their neighborhood. And here they are on a troop ship going across the Atlantic. And at one point, there is a U-boat scare. The alarms go off. And I remember Mary Raglan telling me how terrified she was. Because every ter- everywhere you looked, there was just water. There was nothing you could do. And alarms are going off that were under a U-boat attack. And the, the ship was zigzagging and turning, and women were falling out of bunks. Um, and then they go through a storm, and a lot of them are getting seasick. And, and one of the women, I think it was uh, Romay Johnson, or maybe, maybe it was Mary Ruddock. I'm sorry, I... They're all jumbled in my head. These are all wonderful ladies that I was, I got to know. Um, and she was telling me that she went up on deck. She goes, I had never experienced anything like this. And she was like, the, the waves were like 40 feet. And she goes, it was like being on a roller coaster. And I could see another ship way out in the distance. She goes, everybody else is down there cowering. And I'm like, what? So they really uh, kind of got the, the war experience. Wow. I also heard that there was a Jeep accident. Um, and some women lost their lives. Yes. Um, so just as the war is wrapping up, when they were in France, now the, the, I've heard several versions. Some say it was a jeep. Others say they uh, a, a soldier came by in a, what's called a deuce and a half, a large truck, and they asked for three volunteers. And so three women got on board. Now, according to one of the witnesses I spoke to, and I shouldn't say witness, you know, because no one really saw the accident, supposedly... They were going along the side of a cliff and the road gave out and the truck rolled down and killed three women. And so those three women are actually buried in the Normandy Cemetery in France. And um, when I I give tours of Normandy and and the first time I did this, when I realized that they were buried there, I decided to take my group up to look at one of them. And I was worried because, my God, I'm taking this group of 30 people from a battlefield where all these young white men gave their lives, you know, to win the war. And I'm taking this group up to a black woman's headstone. You know, I'm like, I I, want to tell this story, but I'm worried there might be pushback. And I was with a retired brigadier general. I told him what I wanted to do. And I got up there and I told the story of the 6888. And when I got to the part telling about the women staying in those nice hotels, just about everyone in the group just started nodding their head and like tightening up their lower lip like, yeah, that's justice. And when I finished the presentation, the general just stepped over to me and he said, Kevin, I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. And I was like, phew. And through the rest of the tour, now this is a tour following General Patton's battlefields, the rest of the tour, people were coming up to me going, man, I'm so glad you showed us that. I never knew anything about these women. I never heard of the 6888. And it was just such a relief because as a historian and a guide, you know, you want to touch them with the familiar, but then you want to present something new and you hope it sticks. And so for people to come up to me for the next, what, seven days telling me how that story stuck with them, 
just made me proud that I was able to share it with them and that they appreciated these ladies. So I do know these women um, uh, received or are receiving the Congressional Gold Medal um, uh, from President Biden. But there's also some kind of uh, exciting uh, news that's coming out where they're going to get some more recognition kind of on a bigger screen. Actually, the small screen, I would say, because it's it's Netflix. But yes, Tyler Perry and Kerry Washington are working on a movie about these amazing women. And you were uh, helped help them out. Sure. Um, yeah, it's actually very exciting. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I wrote about these ladies first in 2009. And then um, in 2000, I guess it was 18, I find I found out that uh, where I used to work at Fort Leavenworth, they were building a monument to the 6888. And somebody called me and said, hey, here's the phone number for the group building the monument. You need to connect with them because at that point, I had interviewed three of the ladies, but I had moved on and was doing other things. So I call this gentleman, uh, Carlton Philpot, and uh, he goes, oh, my God, I'm so glad we found you because, you know, we've all read your article. And um, he said, we found three more women. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do you a favor. Give me one of their names and I'll interview the lady. I'll get it published in WWW History Magazine. And it'll be a nice little tribute to go along with it. And he goes, oh, this woman, Lena King, she is a hook. You got to interview her. So I called Lena. She lives out in Vegas. And normally what I do a lot of veteran interviews, uh, it's usually maybe two interviews and maybe a third. Lena and I talked about 10 times. I had so much fun talking to her, learning her story, writing it up. She was so excited that this was, you know, getting made. And we're getting towards the end. And I so I'm telling her, you know, Lena, I'm going to see you in November of, of 2018, 19. And, uh, and I'll see you at Fort Leavenworth when they dedicate the statue. She said, Oh, Kevin, I can't wait because you have such a nice voice. You remind me of Lewis Henry Gates. And I'm like, she thinks I'm black. And I'm like, she's going to have a heart attack when she meets me because she has a whole different image in her head of what I look like. And so, um, I showed up to this thing. And I go, Lena, hi, it's me, Kevin. And this look of horror comes over her face for like a nanosecond. And she checks it and smiles and says, Kevin. And th then she calls her daughter over because it was through her daughter that I reached her. And that's, that's what I do with a lot of vets. I usually have to call their children because the veterans aren't on the internet. Uh, a lot of the World War II ones. So she goes, this is Kevin Hemel. And just then this woman turns around and she's like, you're Kevin Hemel? I said, yeah. She says, well, I'm Colonel Edna Cummings, and we used your 2009 article to write the legislation to get these ladies the Congressional Gold Medal. And I'm like, there's nothing you could have told me to make me feel better. I'm so proud of that. And then I get a call from a producer out in Hollywood, Carlota uh, Espinoza, and she says, oh, my God, this article's great. We're going to make a movie out of it. We want to make a movie. Um and I'm just like, sure, whenever I, 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 you know, I didn't know to believe it at the time. And she calls me about three months later and says, okay, Michelle Obama's on board. She likes the article too. Uh, we're going to do it, go it with Netflix. And I'm just like, oh my God. And, uh, she said, okay, you're probably going to get a phone call from Michelle in about two weeks. And then she calls me a week later and says, okay, it's, Michelle is out. It's now Tyler Perry. And I'm like, fine by me. And she says, he's going to write it. He's going to direct it. He knows what he's doing. The guy does two movies a year. And 
within days, Tyler called and, you know, do I call you Mr. Perry? And he's like, no, you call me Tyler. And uh, he just had all these, you know, historical and technical questions and I'm answering him as best I can and helping him through it, sending him images. And I'll never forget, he said that I was his new best friend. And um, so that was that was a really enjoyable experience. And then uh, they fl- he flew me out to, to, to Hollywood for the table read. And um, then I then he flew me down to Atlanta uh, where they're filming part of the movie. And so I got to meet Kerry Washington and some of the other actors and actresses. Um, and it's just been an amazing experience. But, um, yeah, so he had me down in Atlanta to film the, the ladies coming off their ship uh, and marching and some battle scenes. Uh, I don't want to give a whole lot away about the movie, but I can tell you that, you know, Tyler Perry was just in command of everything. He had a bullhorn uh, and the, 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 all these very pretty young ladies in World War II uniforms and everything. They march off the ship and Kerry Washington gets up on a Jeep and gives this speech about, you know, we're going to march. And the, the young ladies march and Tyler gets on the, the bullhorn and he says, come on, ladies, you can march better than this. You're black. And we all, everybody kind of laughs and he says, don't make me yell at you through the bullhorn. And he goes, even worse, don't make Medea yell at you. And then he just launches into the Medea void, you know, everybody's laughing on stage. It was such an amazing moment. Uh, I just so impressed. So he's directing these women as Medea almost. Yeah. Yeah. And he broke that, in the Medea voice. It was a that's funny amazing. Um, before, so, um, uh, Carrie Washington, who's no, known for the show Scandal and, and several other movies and TV shows, uh, she's going to play the battalion commander, uh, Charity Adams, who we've mentioned before. Oh, by the way, is half of the new name of a base or an army post now, Greg Adams. Uh, the army's made a big push to get the names of sort of, you know, Confederates, uh, Confederate generals out mm-hmm. and, you know, other people in. And so now there is a U.S. Army post called Greg Adams, the soldier's last name, Greg and Charity Adams. So, yes, the six they're ending their due. Um, but I actually spoke to Charity Adams' son right before I flew down to Atlanta. And I said, you know, hey, is there anything you can tell me that I can tell, that, you know, make sure we get accurate? And he says, yes. My mother during World War II always wore yellow gloves. She wanted to look a little different. She wanted to stand out. Uh, and I said, okay. I said, is there anything else? He goes, yeah. She loved to play ping pong. I'm like, mm. So when I got down uh, to Atlanta and I saw Carrie Washington and she's all in her World War II uniform, I related the story about the gloves. And man, she called over a wardrobe person immediately and said, get me yellow gloves. She said, you know, it won't probably be in the beginning of the movie, but maybe we can get them by the end of the movie. And she said, Kevin, what else you got? I said, well, Charity, I don't like to play ping pong. And she was, how am I going to use that? I said, well, when you're giving a speech or something, think about ping pong. And so when she climbed up on this Jeep and gave the introductory or the welcome speech to the ladies, as she climbed down and Tyler yelled, cut, I went over to her and I said, I could tell you were thinking about ping pong. Um, But uh, they went off to England to film the end of the film. And at one point, my producer, as I call them, my producer gals, uh, Carlota Espinosa and, and Carrie, um, oh, geez, Carrie's name just escaped me. I'm sorry, Carrie. Um, they sent me a photograph 
of of Kerry uh, Washington wearing yellow gloves. And so I was like, yeah, I helped That's with saying. <laughs> I I cannot wait to see these little things. I can't wait till the film comes out and we can see all these all these pieces come together. I'm so excited. Well, um, the movie will be premiering in September. Oh, that's great. That's not too too long. <laughs> yeah. And and what Tyler, so the movie is really the six triple eight story, but it's told through Lena King's story. You know, oh, okay. They were kicking around the six triple eight idea for years. And nobody could think of like what's the pull and everything. And what the producers told me, they said there is there are like three sentences in your story that we realize that's the story. And it's something that blew when they told me this, I had no idea. To me, it it was a throwaway line. But Lena, when she was in high school, had was friends with a white Jewish boy. And he leaves to join the Army Air Forces, becomes a fighter pilot. And is killed in combat. And so to honor him, she joins the army. That was her motivation. And they said, when we saw that, we said, there's the hook. A black girl and a Jewish boy having, you know, being close. And I said, Jesus, you know, I'm when I do my veteran interviews and stuff, I'm trying to get them into combat overseas. Everything before that's just chafe. Uh, never dawned on me. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I kept those sentences in the story. Because that was the story. Wow. So yeah. you said they've been working on it for a little bit. Um, and, you know, we talked about the metal. Why now? Why is it now that, you know, the movie's being made and, and all of a sudden we're recognizing these women? You know, I wish <laughs> I was like, because I wrote an article in 2008. Um, and I don't know. It, it was a slow build because, like I said, I wrote that article, um, interviewed three of the veterans and, you know, from there, they started writing the legislation, decided to create the monument. Um, and so that would have been like 2018, 17, 18. Um, and then that, so then that interview with I did with Lena became the movie. Now, Charity Adams did write a memoir that came out decades ago. Her papers are at the Library of Congress. I've gone through them, but, um, I think it might be America trying to make amends because uh, an important part of this story is when I first found out about the 6888 in 2008, uh, and Mary Raglan was the woman I interviewed first, I she actually lived in the Washington, D.C. area. So I drove up to her place and she lived in just an impoverished area in a high rise, you know, apartment building and went up into her apartment. And we sat down and she's telling me the story and I'm taking copious notes because we didn't have iPhones back then. Um, and she went into her closet and she comes out and she's got a stack of papers. And I start going through it. It's all like general orders and manifests and troop listings. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Why do you have this? And she said, well, I was the clerk. And so I typed up all the orders and I made copies for myself. And I'm like, this is incredible. I didn't realize this existed. So I drove over to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, where I do a lot of research. And I said, guys, I want to see all the records on the 6888. And they said, we don't have a single thing. And this is something I've encountered when it, when researching black units from World War II, that their records mysteriously, air quotes, disappear. And in my jaded experience, I almost feel like there were white guys throwing the records off the sides of the ships as they came back. You know, because 
if there's no record of these guys, there's a chance they don't get VA pension benefits and things like that. Um, and it's, it's a very disgraceful thing I've noticed with photographs of black units. You know, with all the white units, there's these big binders of photos with the black units. It's like four photos. You know, it is such a discrepancy. Um, and I ended up going back to Mary and saying, Mary, you are the archive of the 6888. And so when all this buzz started about the monument and everything, I called her immediately because I'm like, oh, got to get Mary in on this. And then she's got the records. And the phone said the phone line was no longer operative and came to find out she had passed away. She is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, incredible loss. She was a wonderful woman. Um, and those records are lost, too. Oh, my God. That's just um, tragic. It's yeah, it's so tragic how, um, you know, not just how they were treated back then, but yeah, the the suppressing of the the information and, and all that stuff. Um, but it's really amazing to see how far we've come and, you know, what these women have women have women have done for, you know, the war efforts. I mean, all of those people that were able to connect with their family. What do you think they've done? What do you think happened for civil rights in terms of war efforts or in general, you know, after this, after they they were able to participate? Well, you can no longer say that black women can do these things, you know, and in a way they changed the face of the army. When people think of the U.S. Army in the 1940s, they think of white men. And no, there's photographs of these black women that serve their country just as proudly as anyone, you know, um, a lot of them. So, and it really depended where they are, because some of them were able to take advantage of the GI Bill because the GI Bill, uh, the, the funding was decided by state. And so if you were in New York or Pennsylvania, these women could come home and get those benefits. If you were from certain parts of the South, they made into their state laws that blacks could not take advantage of VA rights. And so the, the black men and women coming back from World War II could not get a college education, could not enjoy those benefits. Um, but Mary, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Lena uh, was in California and was able to take classes. Uh, she did fabrics. Uh, one of the other ladies, I remember she returned to New York. So, um, and, and they just, and everyone to a person said, we just got all of their lives, you know, which is what you hear from a lot of World War II veterans. I know they did have some reunions, but a lot of them just forgot about their service. That was a blip on the radar screen that they did when they were young. But what's, what's really, what I think people could feel really good about is I've talked to a number of, of black officers and enlisted people in the U.S. military that said, I've heard about these women and they inspired me to join. They inspired me to be a better soldier. So you definitely have that rock in a pond ripple effect. Like, yes, a lot of people didn't know about this, but some people did, and it had a profound effect. I can tell you that I remember in the Pentagon, uh, the Pentagon has a lot of historical displays all through the hallways. Makes it, it makes it just an amazing building. I was a historian for the Air Force uh, Chaplain Corps for a few years, and there was a section dedicated to women in the military, and there's the picture of Charity Adams reviewing the troops. And it's like, you know, there were black women over in Europe, like didn't mention the unit, didn't say who Charity Adams was. And so with my writings and a lot of this work, people have come to me and they said, I've seen those photographs of the 6888 all my life in the military. I never knew who they were, what they did, you know, so it's amazing. Even the 
the elements that did rise to the surface, there was no context. And thank God we're giving them context now. And I just, and if the, the project had to fall into anyone's hands, you, it, Tyler Perry could not have been a better person for it to, to, to move it forward. Good. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm really excited for the, for the film to come out. Um, and, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us that inside look at not only the, the movie, but the women and, and covering the story. I, I think it's just a, you know, great thing to, to finally see it come to light. Um, and I know you have a book coming out. So if you want to, uh, give us a, uh, or a recently released book, if you want to tell us a little bit about oh, that. Oh, right I don't want to plug my books and <laughs> no, so I have been on a 20 year quest to get them the most accurate, uh, history of General George S. Patton, uh, into print. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of veterans and a lot of research around the, the country and the globe. Um, and the result is so far two volumes. The books are called Patton's War, volume one, volume two, and it's an, an analysis of his combat leadership. But it's very colorful because, like I said, I've interviewed a lot of soldiers and, and got their experiences with the general, and I'm working on volume three right now. So I'm very proud of this project, uh, but I have to admit that Patton is the antithesis of the 6888. I was just going to say, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty much the opposite. <laughs> you know, I, I always tell people, study Patton for strategy and tactics. Do not study him for racial harmony and tolerance. So, you know, it would not have been possible without these two women producers, um, Carlota Espinoza and Carrie Selig. They were the ones that took my article, shopped it around, got it to the right people and sort of helped nurse it along um, and got it to Tyler Perry. So without uh, Carlota and Carrie, this none of this would have been possible. Well, thank you so much again, Kevin. And uh, yeah, and hopefully people will come out, see them or go on Netflix, watch the movie and grab your book. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening again. And, and we, you know, we really want to take the time out to show our appreciation and respect for the women of uh, 6888th Battalion. Uh, we thank them for their service and everyone else in the military that may be marginalized after serving the country. Um, we really uh, don't take these stories lightly. I do understand that it is too white people who are discussing this story, but it's it's not a light subject to us. And we think it's very, very important. And we just feel that these stories need to be told. Um, and I will end today with a fun fact of the day. Uh, it is International Day for Women in Maritime. And it's also my birthday. Uh, so keep out for keep an eye out for some content that we have related to women in maritime history. We already have some stuff uh from a couple months ago that we are going to reshare uh, on Freight Waves Classic, um, but we're going to look at some new stuff too. But thank you everyone for tuning in. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jekyll Brielle to see what else we have going on at Freight Waves Classic. And you can email me at Brielle Jekyll at, I'm sorry, at, you can email me at bjekyll at FreightWaves.com. Tune in in two weeks for our ne next episode on June 1st on Freight Waves TV or listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts.